You are listening to a podcast from Essendon Presbyterian Church in Melbourne, recorded 6 p.m. on June 11, 2023, presented by Reverend Bill Medley. Our text we're looking at tonight is John chapter 16, verses 1 to 4, and we're going to read that now uh, on your screen so you can read along with me. These are Jesus' words to his disciples. All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you. Now, if you're following along on a Bible, um, I will perhaps, uh, Josh, if you'd lead that up on the screen where it is, uh, unless otherwise required, that'd be great. We're going to pray. Father in heaven, as we come to examine this part of your word, we just pray you'd be with us and, Lord, that your spirit would uh, teach us uh, and that we would all worship you, myself included, that we'd worship around this word because it's your living word. Speak to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in the previous chapter before this text, Jesus had told his disciples that they've got a a message to testify to. They've got to proclaim this message. It's a message of love. But in this previous chapter, Jesus said, you're going to proclaim this message of love, but what you're going to find is a world that hates God, that's going to persecute you. And that's okay because God saves people who hate him and want to persecute him, persecute his people. So the disciples were told at the end of the last chapter, I'll just read that, it's chapter 15, verse 27, and you also must testify for you've been with me from the beginning. So they've been told they've got to testify to Jesus. Now let's try and picture the Apostle John. He is writing down this gospel and John, by this stage, it's later in the first century, he's an old man and his readers know that he is the last surviving member of the 12 apostles who's still alive. All of the others have been martyred for the faith. They've been killed for testifying. And now here's John and where is he? Well, he's... The readers know he's been shipped off to the island of Patmos, to an Alcatraz-like prison island where he wrote Revelation from. And why was he there? Because of what Jesus said in the previous chapter. Because if they hated me, they'll hate you. Because he was hated for standing for the faith. That was John. Now, by the time John writes this gospel, the church has been in existence for, for decades decades. 
And it's years since Jesus actually uttered these words. John's writing them down. Now, he might have written them down many decades before. Um, he might have been preaching them for the last few decades. But now he's had his gospel circulated and it's late in the first century and only John is left to remember what that he was actually there when Jesus said that that closing of that last chapter before we got into this chapter and you also must testify for you've been with me from the beginning well who's left now that can say that John knows he's the last human being on earth who can say yes I was there with Jesus from the beginning of his ministry and that I have had to testify uh, as Jesus told me. And, of course, John has seen the words of Jesus, the, the promise that you'll be hated, the promise that you'll be persecuted. He's seen that unfold in his lifetime in amazing ways, but he probably couldn't have even imagined what it what was going to happen in the centuries that followed. In fact, before John's first readers read this, they might have been thinking, maybe sometimes you think, is this really the way it's meant to be? Because if we're Christians and we're loving people, shouldn't we be loved and all that sort of stuff? Um, maybe... John's first readers were a bit like that, going, look at all this persecution that's going on of Christians. Something's wrong. Maybe they were even a little bit like John the Baptist who when the Messiah wasn't unfolding the way he thought he was supposed to, actually asked, can we get a message to Jesus? Are you, you really the right one or should we be looking for someone else? It's not working out this way. Where, where's the military victory? Where's the, where's the routing of the Romans? Of course, Jesus got back the message to him that convinced John that he was carrying out the prophecies of the Messiah. Why is all this hatred happening? Well, now John's first readers can say, okay, now I know why. So read with me again the start of our text in chapter 16, verse 1. Jesus says, remember, the context is all of that previous chapter about you're going to be hated, you're going to be persecuted. And then he says in 16 verse 1, all this I've told you so that you will not go astray, so that you won't be thrown, so that you won't do what John the Baptist and say, is, is this wrong? We've got to get another Messiah. So that you won't be like that. And in 16 verse 2, they will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. Now John's readers are going, ah, you mean it's meant to be this way? It's just the way Jesus said. Because when John wrote this gospel, it's, it's possibly uh, the 80s to 90s AD, many years after Jesus had already ascended. And at this particular time, this is when Christians were getting kicked out of the synagogues. Now, 
you might say, well, okay, you get kicked out of the synagogue. You're a Christian, you just go and join the church. But you know, to get kicked out of the synagogue at the time when the emperor Domitian was in power, when John's gospel is circulating, could well mean a death sentence for you. And you go, hang on, just getting kicked out of the synagogue, going to get a death sentence? Could be. Why? Because the Roman Empire allowed people to have, there were registered legal religions within the empire. Now you can believe your stuff. There's just one rule. As long as you burn some incense to Emperor Domitian, the first Roman emperor to demand to be worshipped as deity, and that was the rule. You can have your religion. Believe whatever you want as long as you include bowing down to Caesar as, as Lord. Now, <clears throat> all of the religions within the empire had to, had to go along with that rule except one. There was one registered legal religion that had an exemption from having to bow down to Caesar. And that was because this religion had a long historic monotheism, one and only God. Can't bow down to any one God. That's the Jews. So the Jews had an exception, an exemption, on the condition that they pray for the emperor. They were willing to do that. At least they said they were. So... There you have it. If you're a Jew in the first century, you have an exemption. You do not have to, you can go along your synagogue, you can worship the true God, and you do not have to um, bow down to Caesar or burn incense to Caesar. But if you become a Christian and you get kicked out of the synagogue, you are no longer part, you're now part of a hated cult. You are not part of a legal religion in the empire. And what's the penalty? Death if you do not bow down to Caesar. A couple of examples. Roman administrator Pliny the Younger. Not long after John wrote this gospel, he records how he used to give Christians three chances. He'd say, will you renounce Christ? No. Will you renounce Christ? No. Will you now renounce Christ? No. Third time, not lucky. <laughs> Third time, they get executed. All right? So that uh, Tacitus, a Roman historian, said that, that Christians were this class of hated people for their abominations. Why were they, what were their abominations? Well, they wouldn't believe in the Roman gods. They were called atheists. Christians were called atheists. Why? Because they wouldn't. They didn't believe in all the gods. They must be atheists. Then go one god. Something wrong with them. In in this gospel, earlier in this gospel, in chapter twelve forty two, John records how there were some people that basically John says are, are phony believers among the leaders, mind you, uh, of the Jewish people. There were some people who secretly believed. They believed, he said, but they would not confess their faith for fear, 
of being kicked out of the synagogue. They love the praise of men more than the praise of God, says John. So what he's saying is they're pretend believers. They're not real believers because they love the praise of men more, more than the praise of God. Now, <clears throat> this is one of the things, one of the reasons why we get the understanding that in the early church there was such a thing as church membership. And church membership, one of the primary things of church membership was to publicly confess your faith because that's put, you put everything on the line to, to join a church in the ancient world because you, you publicly profess faith and you get kicked out of the synagogue. And that's why in Romans 10.9, the Apostle Paul says, you can, how, do, how are you saved? If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Oh, that's easy. But can't I just believe in my heart? No, he said if you confess with your mouth. And, of course, he's referring there to the publicly aligning yourself with the Christian church, standing before the congregation and say, I believe in Jesus. We inducted some new members over at Clifton Hill this morning and they did just that. Um, you know, the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, when you made your good confession in front of many witnesses, what witnesses? The congregation. So joining the local church was something that happened way back in that first century. I don't have time to expand all the reasons why I believe that, but that's just one, of, one part of it. And back at the time of the, uh, the, the John's writing this gospel, the Jewish synagogues had, they recited 18 benedictions. Everyone had to recite these benedictions. Now the trouble is, one of those um, benedictions was a curse on Christians. It was a curse on Christians. So if you're going along to the synagogue and you become a Christian, what are you going to do? You're going to either curse yourself and other Christians or you're not going to not recite the benediction, in which case you're exposed. He's one of them. She's one of them. And you will be kicked out of the synagogue. Life on the line. Membership was tough back then. So it meant a lot to John's first readers to hear in John 16 verse 1, all this I have told you so that you will not go astray. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he's offering a service to God. Some of the rabbinic authorities held that killing Christians because they were heretics in their sight, was something that you could do to the glory of God. Time coming when people who kill you will think they're doing something for the glory, offering a service to God. Now, John lived to see Jesus' words come true, but could he have ever imagined what was going to follow long through the centuries. You know, one of the criticisms, I don't know if you've ever heard this, people say, oh, Christianity, you can't trust the Bible because history's always written by the winners. You ever heard that saying, history's already written by the winners? It comes from a small grain of truth, the fact that when ancient armies would win the war, 
They would ride up the battle just the way where they looked good and the other guys didn't look so good. It was all part of so, but that became a bit of a catch line to assess all every historical thing. Our oh, history is written by the winners. You can't trust that because, well, it's actually a contradictory saying. History is written by the winners because if if history was written by the winners and we didn't know what really happened, then we would never know that history was written by the winners, would we? Because we never would have found out, you know. So in other words, the only way we can know that some of these guys did write it up the one is because we actually found out that they were exaggerating well, how, from, from other historical sources. But anyway, the point I bring that up, the reason I bring that up is because that's one of the things that people say about Christianity. They say, look, look at that Constantine. He comes in, he's the emperor of the Roman Empire and he legalises Christianity and make, even promotes it as the religion. And Constantine, you know, he, he just, he wrote up Christianity. And so you open that New Testament and what you're reading is really just something Constantine threw together because he's, he's the winner and he put it together the way he wanted. Now what's wrong with that picture? <laughs> A couple of things. We're talking Constantine 300 years after Jesus and we have the manuscripts of the New Testament from way before, centuries before, even going back to within a very short time of the lifetime of the last of the apostles. So we've got 300 years' worth of manuscripts before Constantine comes in the picture. But people act like, yeah, oh, that's only 300 years, but 300 years. Um, have you ever thought about how long 300 years is in history? Um, when people say that, Oh, it's only 300 years, so, so um, you know, Constantine and these guys might have, might have even knew some of the apostles, you know. It's not that far. You know, it's so short compared to, uh, are you kidding or what? 300 years. Let's put it in perspective. We're in 2023. What's 300 years before us? 1723. Now, what are you, who do you know from 1723? 50 years before Captain Cook even arrives in Australia, what's that got to do it's, 300 years is a massive amount of history. Now come back to our text, our situation here for John. Those 300 years before Constantine came on the scene, the words of Jesus in our text today unfolded powerfully with some of the worst persecution in history against Christianity long before and right up to the time of Constantine. But the persecution, well, it didn't really end when Christianity became accepted in the empire because Satan managed to get inside the church and it was Constantine legalised everything and, and made it a bit of a free-for-all so the pagans were coming in and adding statues and, and icons and all kinds of idolatry into the Christian church <clears throat> but it wasn't long before then we were back into what Jesus is talking about here in verse 2. A time is coming when anyone who kills you will think that he's offering a service to God. By the time the Middle Ages come around, there was persecution before, uh, Jewel and the apostate trying to persecute and push out the Christians a couple of hundred or just a hundred years after um, Constantine. But then by the time we get the Middle Ages and the rise of Islam, we've got, uh, you know, a lot of people don't understand 
and uh, what was really going on. And some of these crusades the Christians brought about were simply political, territorial things. Why? Because Muslims had taken over two-thirds of the Christian world. And so it was a political response and a military response to that. It wasn't a theological response, but it was a territorial response. And during the Middle Ages, you had people uh, who stood up for the Christian faith. The, you might have heard of the Waldensians, a large group in the Middle Ages. Um, you might have heard of Jan Huss or John Huss as he known, John Wycliffe. These guys long centuries before the Reformation, the Waldensians originally, um, the founder of Valdez, he became known as Peter Waldo. He had, he had the scriptures translated in the language of the people back in 11. 80 or around that era. This is, this is a good 300 plus years before the Reformation. And he held to, to and the Waldensians, who were quite tens of thousands of them, were holding to the scriptures and to faith in Christ and the preaching of God's word and rejecting the authority of the Pope and all these sorts of things. So, what happened? Well, those guys who were standing up for the faith. Those Waldensians were slaughtered in tens of thousands, were killed. Why? As heroes for the faith? No, as heretics. A time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he's offering a service to God. Then we go on through the Reformation. The Reformers laid their lives on the line. Uh, Luther, who really started the Reformation, was fleeing for his life. It was only a, a, a political manoeuvring when, when Luther was being tried that, that I think it was Charles V, the emperor, had the more important military business to, to take care of and, and Luther somehow managed to slip through the cracks. But they wanted to return the church to the scriptures, to Christ alone, scripture alone, and they were attacked. You know, in the 1500s, when the Reformation had got underway, Henry VIII's daughter, Mary Tudor, known as Bloody Mary, might have heard of Queen Mary. She came to power and she sought to return England to Roman Catholicism. And in her short reign, in going about doing this, she, how did she convince people? Well, she convinced them by burning people at the stake. She burned about 300 people at the stake from the highest, the Archbishop uh, Thomas Cranmer, down to just lay people. About 200 of the people she burned at the stake were were, had no political threat to it at all. They just all because they believed in Christ alone and would not bow down to this concept of Christ plus our good works that the Church of Rome taught. So it was men and women. Now, 
one example, if you can call a 16-year-old girl a woman, um, quite a famous case, you could look this up, but um, young lady Jane Grey, well-known case. Now, um, she was interrogated by a Roman Catholic prosecutor named Feckenham. Uh, I think, yeah, thanks. Thanks, guys. We've got it up on the screen for us. So this is just a little um, excerpt of this interrogation that went on. So the Roman Catholic guy, Feckenham, says, what thing is required in a Christian? And Jane says, to believe in God the Father, in God the Son, and in God the Holy Ghost, three persons and one God. And the Catholic guy says, is there nothing else required but to believe in God? Jane says, yes, we must believe in him. We must love him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind and our neighbour as ourself. Why then faith justifies not, nor saves not? In other words, he's saying, so faith alone doesn't save you because you said, you know, you've got to love God and you've got to love your neighbour. That, that's You've got to do good works. And, and her response is, yes, verily, faith, as St Paul says, alone, only alone justifies. So it is by faith alone. And then Feckenham says, why St Paul says, if I have all faith without love, it is nothing. So how do you explain that, you know, that you've got to have love as well as faith? Jane says, true it is, for how can I love him in whom I trust not? Or how can I trust in him whom I love not? Faith and love agree together, and yet love is comprehended in faith. In other words, she said, faith alone is what we need to get into heaven. If we truly have faith, we're going to love God and his commands. We're going to want to obey his commands. We will not go on in deliberate sin, but it's faith that saves us. And on the Lord's Supper, which of course the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation that the body and blood of Jesus are literally in the bread and the wine, Fakenham says, Jesus said, this is my body. Jane replies, Jesus said, I am the vine and I am the door, but he is not a vine or a door. I wonder, I wonder if we would have such wit uh, facing death uh, and an interrogation like this. She goes on to say, to eat the literal body is to pluck away my redemption. The one body was tormented on the cross. Amazing theology for a 16-year-old. Strength of faith. But she would not recant her belief that salvation is through faith alone. And so four days after this interrogation, she had her head cut off by the Roman Catholic authorities for trusting what? As a heretic? As a, um, a, as a martyr for the faith? No, as a heretic, as someone who is... Well, we're doing a service to God, aren't we? What did, what did Jesus say in 16 verse 2? A time is coming when in, anyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. Now, 
Queen Mary's quest went on to restore Roman Catholicism to England. And when two of the English bishops, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, were about to be burned at the stake, a now famous line from, from quote, from Hugh Latimer, Be of good cheer, sorry, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Now, as it turned out, he was absolutely right. Latimer was right. Um, they're burning at the stake publicly in England caused the turning of the tide where England made its choice. It was a, we saw what Roman Catholicism was like under Mary and it, England did return to the Protestant faith and as that famous quote says, uh, that candle that they lit was never put out. And we've seen the uh, coronation of a new king and despite the cries and the complaints. It was a very reformed and Protestant uh, service and the vows and every other thing were in line with uh, the Protestant reformed faith. But a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. Queen Mary had her time. A time is coming and... Jesus says we we should expect this time, but it's also Jesus' time. He told us in advance, he said, I'm telling you this so that you will not go astray, so that you won't be thrown, so that you won't think, oh, look, it's all, all going wrong for us Christians. Now, my question tonight is do you believe this? Oh, yes, I believe this. Or do you get thrown? Do you get thrown by Dan Andrews? This isn't the way it's supposed to be. This is all wrong. Hey, we've got to do something. This, this. Who's panicking? Who's getting all upset as though it's out of control, as though this is not the way? Jesus told us this is exactly how it's meant to be. But in and through this, he will continue to have us testify against the hatred, yes. But he will continue to advance his kingdom. And this is how he says it will happen, through hatred, through persecution. That's what we're supposed to expect. You know, the biggest opposition when the saints like Reverend Chris Duke, were making submissions to the government over the same-sex marriage issue before they took the vote. The hardest thing, the biggest, biggest comeback that the government would have was, yeah, you're saying this, but what about all these other Christian churches 
that say it's okay. They say you're not really Christian. They're attacking you as not being the real deal. The very thing that Jesus said, people who in the name of God will still put you down and persecute you. But, of course, even that great event, that great downturn of Australia's morality didn't stop, didn't stop Jesus marching forwards with his kingdom. I know people who were converted during that time. Do you? Because of this plebiscite vote on same-sex marriage, and yes, same-sex marriage is in, People got converted. Uh, you know, years ago I wrote this. Actually, back at that time I wrote that little book on the same-sex marriage debate. I got an email from a lady. She goes, I've been a, living in a lesbian relationship for 30 years and I plucked up the courage to read your little book. Now I'm a Christian. She's going to city on a hill in Geelong or something. But this is the interesting part. She says, I think. God allowed this same-sex marriage thing to go ahead to save people like me. The message that would never have got to, I never would have written that book. We hadn't had a, you know, that message that was going forth from Christian. That is, if we're taking hold of it and saying, God's in this. This is not, Dan Andrews is bringing in these laws, these horrible things happen. Pray the Lord won't do it. Make our submissions. Keep going, Chris. You know, keep doing that. But Jesus is still advancing his kingdom through that hatred, through that opposition. He's not wasting a moment of it. Do you know, the gospel has gone forth so much more powerfully over the last 100 years because of new communication that we have. We never had before. And, of course, especially the last couple of decades with the internet and everything. But during that same 100 years of the gospel exploding throughout the globe, there's also been the most fiercest persecution and murder of Christians than all of the other 19th centuries put together. This last 100 years. 26 million people died because they were Christians. And, you know, it's through China, Soviet, Russia, Cambodia, Pol Pot used to target Christians, Mozambique, Angola, Ethiopia, Uganda, so on and so on. Of course, it's happening today in Sudan. And what about all those closed Muslim countries today? That's where it's really happening. Young bloke uh, just um, been visiting our church in Clifton Hill just recently from Iran, become a Christian. Doesn't want to go back. If I go back there as a Christian now, I'm dead. You can't renounce Islam and live. You know, you go back as a, as someone who was a Muslim, and now I'm a Christian. Dead. Making his plea to the Australian government to seek religious asylum, they rejected him. So, pray 
the two fan that uh, probably shouldn't have said that name and if you're recording this um, edit this bit out <laughs> to keep him safe but that's the sort of thing it's going on we, we're not seeing it um, in that extreme where people are actually losing their lives but they are losing their lives when uh, in in the world today now, some of you might have read uh, Richard Wormbrand's books uh, one of them tortured for Christ where he speaks about being in a uh, under Soviet Russia in a Romanian prison and he says you know, during that time you know when you get locked up in prison you know you're locked up you get beaten up and then when that's finished you get beaten some more and he said what are they beating you for renounce Christ renounce Christ stop preaching Christ and he said that conditions were horrible he said we, you know, we lived on Green mouldy bread, and you know some people died of the disease and everything. And he goes, one day they suddenly came with all this nice meat and fresh vegetables and fruit and everything. He goes, this was fantastic, it was great. And then he realised it's because the the American inspectors were coming over to see what was going on in the Soviet um, prison camps, and he said they did. The U.S. newspapers wrote up the next day how wonderful the conditions were in the Soviet camps, and he goes, and yet next day after, we're back to green bread again. But that was where the persecutors had their time that Jesus is speaking about here. We've got to remember it's also Jesus' time that people were being converted through that time. And Wembrandt talks about how so many people being converted through that. In chapter 16, verse 4, Jesus said, I have told you this so that when the time comes, you will remember that I warned you. In other words, don't, don't be thrown. You know, don't be getting upset and frustrated as if something is out of control. It's all part of the plan. The per persecutions will continue to rage and they do continue to rage and it's happening now. People are being tortured right now, imprisoned and killed. It's happening now. Is it happening to us? Maybe we've got the wrong Christianity because it's happening to Christians throughout the world. It has been for the last 2,000 years. Christianity remains to this day by far the most persecuted group in the world, by far. Listen to the words of the evangelical leader of former Yugoslavia, Peter Kuzmik. So much popular Western evangelical religiosity, so shallow and selfish. It promises so much and demands so little. It offers success, personal happiness, peace of mind, material prosperity, but hardly speaks of repentance, sacrifice, self-denial, holy lifestyle and willingness to die for Christ. Not us, eh? 
but we're too afraid to share the gospel with some some of our friends and family because we, we might get embarrassed or we might put them off. You know, I would invite them to church, but then they'll then they'll really hate me. Hate me? Isn't that what Jesus said is supposed to happen? What have we endured for Jesus? Compared to what our fellow brothers and sisters are enduring right now. Compared to what Jesus went through for us. You see, the only way you can really be empowered to say, I'm ready to lay down my life for Jesus is if you've actually really meditated, entered into what it is Jesus did for us. What the Father did for us. The Father gave you and me everything. Everything. There's nothing more he could have given than to give his own son. To go through what? To go through that eternal separation, that, that extraordinary work of the cross that we can't comprehend so that what? So that we could be restored to a relationship with God, be part of God's plan to testify to this world before it closes up the lot and then there's what on the other side? Less than eternity. A few short years from now. We're all believers here tonight. A few short years from now, we're all going to be in eternal bliss. And what about those we didn't get around to telling because we're too embarrassed? Well, but there's an eternity on the other side. That's the message that Jesus keeps coming back to, the eternal nature of the gospel. We've got to keep our eyes on what Jesus has done for us that we can be fired up to just say there's nothing matters, nothing else matters than Jesus and proclaiming his message, the good news. Just to close, we can surmise what John might have been reflecting on as he wrote this because when John was a young man, even when he was travelling with Jesus, his idea along with his brother John of of how to evangelise was to call down fire from heaven and eat up those people who rejected the message. What a loving guy, though, John was, eh? And and he, because he's a humble guy too, he and his brother, what what do they want? They want Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, your military might, I want to stand one on the right, one on the left. Arrogant, prideful, hating the way of Jesus, of laying down your life for others, but no, we want to burn them up. That was John. And look who John turned out to be, the great apostle of Jesus that we're reading his gospel. What does that tell us? It tells us that, yes, we've got to go through some hatred. Yes, we've got to go through some rejection. But going through that, God has God saves people who hate him. God saves people who hate him. All at one time, we were against Jesus. Before we came to repentance, we were against Jesus. We hated Jesus. 
But we're here. God saves people who did hate him to come to a point where they love him. But we've got to fix our eyes on the eternal picture to, to just take this message forwards and believe that Jesus died for our eternal life. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do just pray and ask that you would strengthen us to be willing to testify, to willing to lay down our lives because you're worth it, because the people we're trying to reach are worth it and we were in their shoes and we were no better than them. But you're able to change hearts, Lord, and you'll use the weakest of us to use a message to change people's eternal destiny. Do pray, Lord, for that young Iranian man that he might be able to find a way that we, that we would be able to help him to get asylum in Australia. But we know, Lord, that no matter what time evil people have who claim to be doing it in the name of God, killing Christians in the name of God, that you would continue to advance your kingdom and save your people for your glory. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. More messages of hope at Essendon Presbyterian Church.org.au or wherever you get your podcasts from.